Here in the United States, COVID-19 cases are in steep decline as more and more people get vaccinated. The Centers for Disease Control announced last week that fully vaccinated people can stop wearing masks. And most of us are starting to loosen up to return to a sense of normalcy. But globally, cases continue to rise at alarming rates. In India, bodies of COVID-19 victims are piling up so fast that family members have to cremate them in parking lots. In Brazil, gravediggers work through the night. Even Germany, once celebrated for its pandemic response, has seen its death toll triple in recent months, and the federal government just imposed its toughest lockdown yet. In other words, for us here in the U.S., normalcy is an illusion as long as we don't contain this global pandemic. Today, we bring you cautionary tales from two of the largest countries on Earth, India and Brazil. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the L.A. Times. Today's May 19, 2021. The House passes a bill to address anti-Asian hate crimes. European foreign ministers ask Israel to declare an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. And a Nobel Prize laureate says artificial intelligence, quote, is going to win against humanity. Eh, nothing a gift war can't solve. Brazil and India now have half the COVID cases in the world. We speak to two LA Times foreign correspondents, David Pearson and Kate Linthicum, about what the plight of these global powerhouses suggest about the spread of coronavirus around the world. At a conference in late April, the chief of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhimon Ghebreyesus, said global cases were rising at alarming rates. Globally, the number of new cases per week has nearly doubled over the past two months. This is approaching the highest rate of infection that we have seen so far during the pandemic. India, the world's second most populous country with 1.4 billion people, keeps setting daily records for new cases. In the beginning of the pandemic, India imposed strict lockdown orders and was widely praised for its containment of COVID-19. So how did the COVID situation take a turn for the worse there? We turn to David Pearson, who covers Asia for us at The Times. Welcome to The Times, David. Hey. So only two months ago, it seemed like India appeared to have a handle on COVID-19. India's prime minister even held a political rally that thousands of people attended. But that relaxing of restrictions proved premature, right? That's correct. It turns out they did not have a handle on COVID-19 at all. And there may have been a bit of hubris at play here. They relaxed the restrictions in the country far too early. There were experts, policymakers that had been warning of a looming second wave because they were seeing new mutant variants of the coronavirus coming through. But for political reasons, for economic reasons, there wasn't much interest in taking those warnings seriously. So what happened was they started relaxing a lot of the social distancing restrictions a couple months into the year. So people were showing up at weddings, at a, a massive cricket match between India and England, and what turned out to be a massive super spreader event, a religious, a Hindu religious festival in the Ganges called Kumbh Mela where millions of people descended in the waters and it turned out to uh, spread the infection throughout the country. So now we're seeing an absolute catastrophe unfolding here in India. People are dying faster than they can actually cremate the bodies. There are furnaces melting in crematoriums. They've run out of firewood. 
They've even put up nets in the Ganges to catch the bodies floating in the water. What was the reluctance to impose a second lockdown in India? It was politically advantageous, but you also have to remember that India's economy shrank by 8% uh, the last fiscal year, and that, that was massive. About a, millions of middle class were thrown back into poverty. So this had a huge economic impact on the country. And it's one of the reasons why there's a reluctance now to go back into lockdown. It's a sad irony, I feel, with India, because it's one of the leading producers of the AstraZeneca vaccine, And yet less than 10% of its population has been vaccinated. Has that played into the rise of COVID cases in India? Certainly. Their vaccination drive has stalled. They have not ordered enough vaccines. The CEO of the largest vaccine manufacturer, the Serum Institute of India, said they did not anticipate a second wave. The government did not order more vaccine doses. And to make matters worse... They had promised vaccines for for other parts of the world. So now they are in a situation where they have to drive up production and they probably will not be able to get the vaccine drive started going again and toward the end of the year. India has even had to reverse its decision to vaccinate younger people because they don't have enough for the, the older citizens in the country. The demand for vaccination is surging in India, with people standing in long lines outside centres around the country. New Delhi medical officer Utsav Singh says numbers have doubled in the recent period. Before some days we were vaccinating around 500 to 600 people. Now we are vaccinating around 900 to 1100 people a day. India placed a moratorium on exports. This is why it's devastating for developing countries, because they really were relying on India to come through for them. India was also going to donate to the um, COVAX program. COVAX is a World Health Organization program to try and level the marketplace for uh, vaccine doses. They, They would accumulate their own supplies and try and sell them at sort of a reasonable price to other countries in need. So the problem is when India goes out, I mean, there's such an important cog in the vaccine supply chain that really this ripples across the globe and it delays this recovery that we were all hoping for. We've seen the global community come together to help India. What was the American response? In the beginning, they didn't do anything at all. And uh, India was really quite upset about this. America holds some of the important cards, such as being able to export important ingredients and raw materials for vaccine production. And because the U.S. had imposed something called the Defense Production Act, they weren't allowed to send these key raw materials to India. So there was a lot of pressure on the United States, on Washington from India, to lift the DPA so that some of these things, such as bioreactor bags and filters to make vaccines, could get to India. And so tensions got pretty nasty. India felt like they were being left behind uh, by this key ally in the U.S. And from the U.S. perspective, you know, what they choose or what they decided to do with India has great implications as to what sort of country it wants to be in in terms of vaccine diplomacy. So this is sort of a litmus test for the United States. 
and Washington's instinct in the beginning was to protect its own resources and to vaccinate its own people first, but at the cost of foreign policy. India is a, you know, a very important partner in the world today because the U.S. is looking for allies to counter China's rise. And India and China, of course, there's no love lost between those two countries. You mentioned earlier about new variants coming from India, and scientists found one of them, B1617. U.S. and global health experts are concerned that this mutation spreads way easier than other variants? That's right. The WHO labeled it a variant of concern, and it has some of the markings of the variant that we saw in California that was very infectious, and the variant in South Africa that showed some resistance to vaccines. And so the nickname for this variant is the double mutant. And it's shown up in at least 17 other countries so far, including the United States. And there's fears that this potentially highly infectious variant will spark another wave of the pandemic. At the very least, it's going to help prolong the pandemic in the, in the rest of the world. What's the feeling among Indians about their country's coronavirus response? There's just absolute misery and despair right now. There's no one safe from this second wave. Uh, I wrote about how, unlike the past, this wave is starting to hit the middle and upper classes in India. You're seeing politicians, you're seeing cricket stars, you're seeing Bollywood stars all get sick and their families getting sick from the second wave. And... It's just relentless right now. I wrote about the lack of oxygen. This is the most basic medical therapy that people need when they have COVID-19. India does not have enough infrastructure to distribute oxygen to patients, especially when you're talking about a minimum of you know, 350,000 new cases a day. We expect that number to be much, much higher because of undercounting. The health system there is completely on the brink right now. Hospitals are being overwhelmed, and even some who managed to find a bed are suffocating with oxygen in short supply. Mohan Sharma tells Sky News his father died outside a hospital in Delhi Friday. Sharma was back Saturday with his grandfather. For a country who had, uh, you know, one of the most popular and powerful prime ministers, you're starting to see his popularity weaken now because people are, are calling into question the state. There's been articles in local media labeling this a uh, state failure. And so we'll just have to see there. It's a great deal of resentment and, and despair right now. Is there any indication that things will improve sooner rather than later? We don't know where the peak is just yet. The way out of this right now is to bring up the vaccination, but that is going to take too long. So medical experts are saying they have to lock down again. And the problem is the central government is delegating a lot of these policy decisions to the state. Some say to deflect blame. So we've seen lockdowns in some of the bigger cities like the capital of New Delhi, in the financial center, Mumbai. But in terms of a national lockdown, there's, again, resistance from the central government to impose one. Southeast Asian countries like Cambodia and Thailand, they're seeing spikes in cases. Malaysia just imposed lockdown orders. Meanwhile, here in the United States, we're slowly trying to get back to normal. The CDC said that fully vaccinated people don't have to wear masks in public, whether indoors or outdoors. In the countries that you cover, how are they feeling about our push to try to get back to normal as soon as possible, even though coronavirus is still raging around the world? 
Yeah, I think there's a real dissonance with what's happening in the United States and what's happening in this part of the world. You know, America, what you're seeing is the luxury of having first dibs on the vaccines, whether people want to take it or not. Enough people are taking it in the United States to improve their daily lives, whereas here we're seeing vaccine rates still in the single digits, just not good enough right now. Even here in Singapore, which is considered one of the wealthiest countries in this part of the world, uh, with a population of under 6 million, you know, they're still taking a while to, to vaccinate everyone. And on Friday, the government just reimposed lockdown orders because these new variants are creeping across the border. Even in Taiwan, where they, they've never had a lockdown before, you're seeing new variants creep across the border. There's just no stopping. You can, these borders cannot stop this disease. You know, it's even worse in, in poorer countries like Cambodia, where they've implemented sort of draconian lockdowns in some of the cities. People aren't getting enough food. Uh, in Thailand, people are, you know, devastated from the loss of tourism. Now all the restaurants have to close in Bangkok and, and other cities. You know, this part of the world is really girding for another wave. We can't just see India as an isolated case, uh, because when you see India, oh, it's so far away. But as you said earlier, David, if India suffers, then other countries suffer. If other countries suffer, then even more countries suffer. And then at the end, it's going to come to the United States. And on top of that, you see the case of India where things open way too soon. And here we are in the United States. Some people are saying we're opening way too soon. Maybe we turn into another India if we do let our guard down. This catastrophe in India, I, I think what it's made clear is that this pandemic is not going to end anytime soon. It is. It has completely delayed this recovery that we thought was on the horizon. The U.S. cannot go it alone. You know, they need the rest of the world to start again in order for us to, to return to whatever sense of normality that people had before. Thank you so much for this interview, David. Hey, thank you, Gustavo. It was a pleasure. After this break, we'll turn to Latin America and check in with Times correspondent Kate Linthicum, and she's going to talk about the COVID situation in Brazil. While India tried to get coronavirus under control, Brazil never really bothered on the federal level. It's now home to a new variant, P1, which is spreading through South America and is twice as transmissible as other known variants. Health experts put all the blame on President Jair Bolsonaro. Despite getting COVID himself last July, he's been openly skeptical of disease. To talk about Brazil and their COVID situation, here's Kate Linthicum, an LA Times foreign correspondent based in Mexico City. Hola, Kate. Welcome to The Times. Hola. It's so nice to be here. So Bolsonaro has been called a Trump-like figure. How did he handle the COVID situation in Brazil in the beginning of 2020? So like Trump, he tried to minimize it from the beginning. He referred to the coronavirus as a little flu and said that, you know, people who were afraid of it were whiny. He basically refused to institute lockdowns across Brazil. He refused to institute any other kind of social distancing measures. And as a result, the death toll from COVID in Brazil just exploded. As of this moment, the death toll in Brazil is well over 400,000. But things got a lot worse last fall when 
epidemiologists started noticing this new variant, which is called P1, in the Brazilian city in Manaus, in the Amazon. Health officials in Britain have identified six cases of a highly contagious coronavirus strain first identified in the Brazilian city of Manaus. The Brazilian variant was first detected in the U.S. at the end of January, and the CDC reports nearly 50 cases nationwide. Some researchers are concerned that people who have already been infected with COVID-19 might be reinfected with the Brazilian variant. And this variant was super scary because it appeared to be more transmissible than the original COVID and in particular was infecting people who had already had COVID, meaning their antibodies to the first version of the virus weren't working against this new variant. And it was infecting younger people. So in the last four months in Brazil, there's been a 1000% increase in the number of people aged 20 to 29 who are dying. March comes along, Bolsonaro is still saying, yeah, you know, you're a wuss, you're, you're sissy. And those are his words, not ours, for obsessing about coronavirus. And just a couple of weeks after the beginning of March, he actually signed into law three new measures to speed up the purchase of vaccines. What happened? Um, it's pretty obvious that his strategy of denial, hoping the, the virus would go away, hasn't been working. And people are, you know, increasingly distraught and increasingly angry at him. And so he recently sort of reversed course a bit on the vaccination front. This is a man who had said no when Pfizer offered to sell Brazil vaccines earlier on. So yes, it's it's definitely a step in the right direction for Brazil, which is only 5% vaccinated at this point. But there's so much fears that this variant, this P1 variant, is, is already running rampant. And Brazil's inability to control this thing has led to a resurgence of COVID across Latin America. You know, the region has 8% of the global population, but it has accounted for well over a third of all coronavirus deaths in the world. This is a place that is suffering a lot more than other places in the world. And there's this real question of, is it too late? Are we able to up the vaccinations in time to stop this variant or future variants from spreading. Bolsonaro even got COVID and he recovered. But do you think his attitude changed at all about this? You know, not much in, at that time last summer. I mean, he sort of famously took his mask off, uh, you know, while talking to reporters in the middle of being sick with COVID. After months of downplaying the virus's severity, Brazil's president says he has tested positive for a COVID-19. Jair Bolsonaro has said his history as an athlete would protect him from the virus. And if he did get it, it'd be nothing more than a little flu. Positive. Deu positive. Deu positive. Deu positive. Bolsonaro tells reporters he does now have it. He's continued to clash with members of his own cabinet, with leaders of big states in Brazil over the need for social distancing measures. I mean, he's had three different health ministers, either, you know, that he's fired or who have resigned just in the last year. He's very much a politician in the Trump model. He's a populist who likes to speak directly to the people. He is unafraid of saying things that are controversial. You know, he said sort of very inflammatory comments against the LGBT community, against women, against the Afro-Brazilian community. He's, he's sort of maintain this this high level of popularity because he's not politically correct. And that's actually resonated with a, a large part of 
the population. But I think, you know, more than a year later into this pandemic, people are starting to um, really start to doubt him and his strategy. There is an investigation into him, a, a criminal investigation, and also a Senate investigation into his handling of the coronavirus. This is going to generate a ton of coverage, and it could affect his chances uh, for staying in office and, and his party's chances in the future. Even though he's popular, has there been any sort of public outcry as Brazil has so many deaths? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Brazil is a place that, like the United States, is extremely divided politically. You have a very, very clear left and a very clear right. And the left, in this case, has complained repeatedly about his inability to, to take this pandemic seriously. But I think it's going to be sort of the economic <laughs> consequences as the death toll keeps mounting. Going back to the P1 variant, you mentioned that it's been spreading all across South America specifically. How are other countries reacting to that? Because I know some countries in South America, they did their uh, you know stay at home mandates, masks. They did a good job at it. And now all their good work is basically thrown away because of what happened with Brazil. Yeah, we've seen record highs for daily death tolls in Brazil recently, but also Colombia, Peru, Argentina, even countries like Uruguay that did a, a wonderful job of kind of keeping the virus at bay at the beginning are now seeing, you know, just an explosion of cases. And Latin America faces such a difficult situation right now because these are generally poor countries to begin with, where a lot of people sort of depend on a day's work to be able to eat that night. And so you are seeing countries sort of beginning to go back into lockdown. Also, you're seeing countries that are struggling financially themselves. In Colombia, the government coffers have been sort of drained by the pandemic. And Colombian leaders are saying, you know, we need to raise taxes in order to survive. That has been met with huge nationwide protests in recent days. No! And we've seen more than a dozen people killed by police. So people are taking to the streets in, in anger about what's happened with the economy, you know, what, what is happening with the virus. And until there's more vaccination, things aren't really going to get better. So that's led a lot of people in the United States and other wealthy countries that have been able to afford vaccination to say, we need to do more to help countries like India, countries like Brazil, poor places with huge populations where if the virus, you know, is allowed to kind of continue to run rampant and mutate is eventually going to make it harder for the entire world to recover. Because if you have the virus, you know, continuing in parts of the world, that's going to mean even in places like the United States that eventually get practically all vaccinated, that's going to be a real risk because the virus could mutate into new forms that then could potentially infect people who, who have received vaccinations. So there's a, a lot of calls right now that are saying, you know, this is not just a moral imperative that countries like the United States help these other regions. This is an economic imperative. This is what you owe your own citizens because what it looks like for an American in five years may well depend on whether we get this virus under control in other parts of the country.
So earlier in this episode, we spoke with David Pearson about what's happening in India. So if this pandemic continues to kill people across the world for years to come, it's there's not going to be much of a global economic recovery. New mutations will come or mess up the effectiveness of vaccines. And as you wrote in The Times, that there is this moral imperative and a responsibility to increase that global supply, right? Absolutely. And the big conversation that we're having right now is about vaccines and they are trademarked to these big pharmaceutical companies, the Pfizer's, the Moderna's, um, the AstraZeneca's of the world. There is a big push for those companies to basically share their formulas for their vaccines with the world so that poorer countries can start making their own genetic versions. Several of the leading members of the World Trade Organization had opposed that, saying it would you know, hurt the competitiveness of the pharmaceutical industry. It's sort of anti-capitalist. That's certainly what the Trump administration said. But last week, the Biden administration said that it supports the sharing of the vaccine recipes with the rest of the world so that we can see, you know, generic vaccines made quickly and cheaply in other parts of the world. Thank you so much for this interview, Kate. So nice to be here. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the Los Angeles Times. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Julia Turner is our editor. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. And our theme music is by Andrew Epen. I'm Gustavo Arellano. Tomorrow, we're talking about the Los Angeles Police Department's crowd control tactics and a federal injunction that would temporarily stop the use of less lethal weapons. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and this madre. Gracias.